0: You are listening to content from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. For more information, you can find us on the web at ChristOurHopeAnglican.org. And now, here's today's message. I want to begin my sermon today, though, by addressing what may seem to some like an elephant in the room, and others perhaps a mouse that isn't noticed at all. Each week we look to this book for the words of life. We proclaim that it is inspired by the Holy Spirit and is the very word of God given to us. How is it then that the account of Andrew and Simon's call in the book of John, which I taught about last week, is so different from this week's gospel reading? John said that Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist who heard him declare that Jesus is the Lamb of God. On the basis of that testimony, he began following Jesus and became his disciple when Jesus invited him to come and see where he was staying. Later, he went and found his brother, Simon, and told him he had found the Messiah. And Simon believed his brother's words and also became a disciple of Jesus. Mark tells what seems like a very different story. In our gospel reading today, Simon and Andrew were fishing along the shore when Jesus walked by and said, "'Follow me and I will make you fishers of men.' the brothers immediately left their nets and began to follow Jesus. There was no mention of having met him before, no mention of John the Baptist introducing them, just this call and this response. How do we reconcile these two different accounts? Does it even matter? I mean, we could just take each story as we have received it and look for the spiritual truth in it without worrying about whether it aligns with historical fact. But to do so would undermine our trust in the rest of what the Gospels have to say. And we've staked our life on this text, not because it tells good stories to live by, but because we believe it is the truth. If it is not, if Jesus was not who he claimed to be, if he did not die for our sins and rise again in victory over sin and death and the devil after three days, then we are fools who have no hope beyond the empty promises that the world offers. That doesn't mean we hold the gospel writers to the standards of modern historians. Like when they are quoting people, they're not trying to get direct, accurate transcriptions of what they've said. But if their accounts cannot be reconciled at all, if they can't come together, it undermines their claim to the truth and it steals our hope. Fortunately, in this case, making sense of the two stories seems fairly straightforward. It appears that most likely Jesus met Andrew and Simon shortly after his baptism. They believed that he was the Messiah based on the introduction of John the Baptist, and decided to follow him, but then he left them behind for a time. Perhaps it was when he went into the wilderness to fast and to face temptation from the devil. For 40 days, a story that John doesn't include in his gospel. So when he returned and began preaching his message of repentance, he found them fishing and issued his command, follow me and I will make you fish for people. But when we try to put together stories like this, we we run another risk. In our desire to, make, to, to protect the truth of the gospel, we can diminish the force of what the, what the gospel writer is actually trying to tell us, of what Mark is trying to say. The kind of radical obedience that is on display in this story can, be, excuse me, can make us uncomfortable. And we can find ourselves breathing a sigh of relief that there may have been an earlier encounter. And saying something along the lines of, ah, they knew him already. That explains their willingness to leave their nets and follow him. But that really doesn't explain things. Is there anyone you know who could walk up to you and ask you to to leave your career, leave your family behind, and come with them and follow them, and you would just drop everything right now to obey them? That may be why Mark left out that part of the story of that earlier encounter. He doesn't want us to get distracted. He wants us to wrestle with the authority of Jesus' call in this moment, an authority that is rooted in his identity and the content of his preaching, not some mystical force of charisma where where this man that they've never seen can walk by and issue words and they just feel like they have to follow him just because of of the power of his very presence. And, And thus it is no accident that our gospel reading today began not with the call of the disciples, but with Jesus' preaching in Galilee. His preaching is the crux on which this story depends And it's the piece that ties together the revelation of his identity at his baptism and the disciples' response to his call along the Sea of Galilee. The content of his preaching is brief and seemingly right in line with John's message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Mark sums it up in just a couple of sentences. Some versions use semicolons, so it really is one big sentence that they kind of join together. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near, Repent and believe in the good news. But this short and seemingly simple statement raises a host of questions. That seems to be the nature of Jesus when he speaks. He he tends to raise more questions uh, every time that he, he opens his mouth. But when we seek for the answers, we find him. We find the truth. The questions he raises are things like what is the time that has been fulfilled? What does he mean when he says that the kingdom of God has come near? And then what does it mean to repent and believe in the good news? The answers to these questions unfold throughout the gospel of Mark. But there are a few immediate hints in the Greek that are not apparent in our English translations. The first clue is hiding in the word time. Ancient Greek has two words for time. Chronos, which refers to sequential time, what we measure with our clocks and our calendars. When I start preaching, I start the chronograph on my watch so that I can actually keep track of how long I'm talking to you and and know how long it's been. Um, Same root word as, as chronos. I'm keeping track of some sequential time. But the word that Jesus used was kairos. Kairos is less concerned about exactly where the moment fits within a sequence of events and is more of talking about this is the right moment. It's the opportune moment. When we say that someone happened to be at the right place at the right time, We're talking there about Kairos. So when Jesus talks about the time being fulfilled, he's not talking about some heavenly stopwatch that was started at the beginning of creation and then it's finally hit its mark. He's proclaiming the reality that this moment, the moment that he is preaching, the moment that you have an encounter with Jesus matters in God's plan. And it's not to be missed. It's similar to when he went into the synagogue and read from the the prophet Isaiah and then proclaimed, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It declares it to be a moment of significance and any who are within earshot should pay attention. The other hidden clue is the word kingdom. When we use that word in English, it almost always conveys the meaning of a place with defined boundaries and is basically synonymous with a, a country. But in the Greek, the word referred to a reign, not a realm. The kingdom of God is not talking about a specific place that's coming. It's anywhere that God is exercising his kingly authority. Put together, when Jesus says that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near, he's saying that it's this moment that you should recognize that the reality of God's authority is being made evident. Brings me back to my childhood and thinking back at the moment at the end of the Lion King. When Simba has already vanquished his Uncle Scar, but has yet to to formally declare himself to be the king by ascending Pride Rock. And so the prophet Baboon Rafiki tells him it is time. It is Kairos. It's the opportune moment. The moment has come and it will wait no longer. And as Simba starts to walk up, there's this dramatic music that plays. It's in the rain. He's walking up the rock. And the eyes of all the animals who are looking upon him, they widen in awe. Because even though they've seen him before, they've never seen him before like this. And they suddenly realize that there is a king, a true king, and what that means for them in that moment. Jesus wants his listeners to open their eyes and see they are in the presence of the true king. But the return is only good news if you're on the side of the king who's come back. Just as in the Lion King, when when Simba returns, he also casts out Scar and the hyenas, all those who don't belong in the kingdom. When the king returns... And he exercises his authority and his power. His enemies will be cast down and thrown out of the kingdom. And this is why the message that the kingdom is near, the kingdom of heaven has come, naturally leads to this call for repentance. Because by by nature, we are enemies of God. But when the king is coming, Jesus is offering this opportunity, this chance to change our mind to turn around, to turn away from from what it is that is distracting us, that we are following instead of the true king, so that if the king is coming, we can be on the side of his followers. This is the call to repentance. But questions still remain. What will that kingdom actually look like? How does a person show their allegiance to the coming king? And almost everyone who Jesus interacted with in his ministry, not least his disciples, got the answers to those questions wrong until after his death and resurrection. The entire book of Mark is, is this unfolding understanding of what the kingdom of God actually means as they watch what Jesus does, as they listen to his teaching. And it's not until he enters into Jerusalem with this triumphant moment and then instead of seizing power, goes to the cross. And says, this too is part of my kingdom. This too is my authority being exercised. And then comes back to them that they actually understand what it means. But while they didn't get it, in their minds at least, until very late in their time walking with Jesus, there's this moment right here at the very beginning where they did get it in practice. They they understood the message of repentance. They understood what it means to be in the presence of a king with their actions. Because when Jesus says, call to me, when Jesus says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men, it seems like he's moved on, that he's on a different phase from what his preaching was talking about. That he's now, he's, he's set the tone of his preaching, and now he's moved on to calling followers. But Jesus is the beloved Son of God whose identity was revealed at his baptism. He is the one whom John the Baptist was waiting for when he proclaimed that his mission was to prepare the way of the Lord. Jesus is the coming King. And so, just as my preaching must always have Jesus at its center, so that like Paul, when I come among you, I can strive to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus' own preaching had himself at its center. And so this is why his message and his ministry were so powerful. It's why they were a stumbling block to many. It's not because of his ethical teaching or even his comments on the political um, situation of his age. It's because none of it makes sense unless you accept that he is the Lord. He is the one whose kingdom is coming near. So when Jesus walked up to Simon and Andrew and said, follow me, it was a succinct way of repeating his earlier sermon. It presented them with an opportune moment, a kairos, in which to make a decision about whether or not they would follow the divine king, whether they would recognize that the kingdom of God has come near. And to obey, they had to turn away not only from their sin, but from anything that had an obligation on them that competed with their allegiance to that king. And they did. They left behind their nets, their livelihoods, and went to follow Jesus. When he walked a little further along the shore and issued the same call to James and John, they left behind not only their nets, but their father in his boat with the hired men. These four disciples, they show us what it is to repent and believe. It's not primarily a moment about a moment of enlightenment or spiritual understanding. The understanding would come later for the disciples, but the repentance happened when they chose to obey. The call was issued to them, and they chose to obey, even when all their other obligations seemed to make it impossible or impractical to do so. This extraordinary demand is not only for the apostles. This is the demand that we face from Christ. And when we're faced with the prospect of this radical obedience, of following him, of leaving behind all of the things that distract us, many of us try to find ways to sort of rationalize that it's less than what it actually is. We want to say that that call is only for a few. The apostles were special, right? They were called to this special moment of ministry. So maybe in our age, professional clergy or the extra spiritual or those who have plenty of time on their hands can follow that call. In ages past, it was the monks that the church actually held them up and said they can follow the call because the call is only for a few. But and again, throughout history, throughout the Gospels, we see the same standard set for all who would be a disciple of Jesus. Responding to the Gospel involves radical obedience to Christ and a willingness to leave everything to follow him. If we can't exclude ourselves from the call as a whole, our next response is just to try to limit it. So maybe if it applies to me, but I have to, to somehow soften it, to make it so that it's easier to take this call to obedience, this call to leave everything for allegiance to Jesus. I want to develop boundaries and nice rules that I can follow. You know, if I faithfully give 10% then I'm following Jesus, that should satisfy him. If I spend 30 minutes of quiet time every day, 30 minutes in a day is hard to find. If I can get that, then it must mean that I'm faithfully following Jesus. Maybe if I volunteer, if I I walk among the poor, if I give to others who are in need, then that's, that's the marker. That's it. That means that I'm doing it. I'm faithfully following Jesus. But Jesus' demand is absolute. He wants you to follow him without reservation, Or qualification. The next response we might have if we actually confront that and actually believe that is a response of despair. The cost is so high who can pay it? We become like the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and walked away sad because he was asked to give up his wealth and he had much wealth. He wanted to follow but the cost was too high. Jesus had compassion on him. But he didn't soften the demands so he could bring him back. Jesus doesn't allow us to soften the call upon our life. And perhaps when all the other options are exhausted, we find that we can't exclude ourselves from the call, we can't limit the call, we come face-to-face with our despair and the impossibility of actually following it, we'll eventually try obedience. And if we do, we'll find that Jesus gives us not only the command, but also the strength to obey. The gift of his Holy Spirit, the, the gift his Holy Spirit produces is just the sort of fruit that we need to follow Him. We will find that surprisingly, His yoke is easy and His burden is light. And that all we have lost is nothing beside what we have gained. These are the things that Jesus showed in his teaching and in his life that unfolded throughout his ministry. But all of this still sounds kind of abstract. What does it actually look like to follow Jesus? Jesus isn't likely to appear to us in the flesh. So we don't have the opportunity to, to literally leave everything and follow him and walk behind him around the neighborhoods of Fort Collin or the realms of Galilee. In fact, Let me just say that there are some differences in the call that are on us. So, for instance, if you're married and you're here today and you feel like Jesus is calling you to leave your family, you're wrong. Um, And come talk to me. We'll listen together for what Jesus is actually calling you to do. So what is involved? First, we set our intent. We recognize that Jesus is the, the pearl of great price, as he said in his own parable, that's worth more than everything we own. It's worth selling everything and going to, to just have this one precious thing. And we commit our hearts to follow him. Our commitment will not be perfect. Our faith is likely to waver. But we decide. Jesus is worth it. I will choose to follow, no matter the cost. And even in this step, you need his help. You can't do it on your own. You need to ask for his help, even for the step to commit and to believe and to have faith that he is precious, to see who he really is. Because the king reveals himself. There's no other way to see him. Then we repent of anything that interferes with our obedience. Of course, that means we repent from sin. We turn away from our sin. But it's not only outright sin that can keep us from following Jesus with our whole heart. For many, one of the major themes of Jesus' teaching is that money is an obstacle. And if money keeps you from following Jesus, give it away. And don't rationalize. Don't be, don't be like easy on yourself here. If it keeps you from following Jesus, get rid of it. He's worth more. For others, it might be your rep- reputation. People outside of the church might jeer at you or, or mock you for your faith. Or maybe just your your standing and your career path will go down if you are open about what you believe. If your reputation keeps you from following Jesus, throw it away. It's not worth it. For others, it could be your career or a sport or a food or Facebook or your ambitions. Whatever it is, it's not worth it. Throw it away. Hold to your commitment to follow Jesus no matter the cost. Ask for his help in holding to that commitment. Again, you cannot do it on your own. This is not a roundabout way to a doctrine of works. It's it's, it's the doctrine of grace, of God empowering us. We need him, but it is a recognition that it is obedience that he calls us to. And it's that that we need his help for. Pray for God to reveal anything that is keeping you from following him. Repent with the power of his Holy Spirit to bring you into his ways. And then, when you've done that, when you've come to him in prayer, when you've asked for help, listen to his voice. Because you're called not to a set of rules. There's no easy way to simplify this. You're called to follow a person. And to do this, you have to actually listen to that person. You're unlikely to ask him to hear you to, You're unlikely to hear him ask you to follow him in an audible voice, though for some that may happen. But Jesus still speaks to us. He speaks to us through his word that he has given to us. He speaks to us in moments of prayer. So read the scriptures. Pray and listen for the response. I know that sounds so simple while being frustratingly difficult to do at times. It'd still be nice if I could somehow find the set of rules to follow the set of spiritual practices that if you just do this you'll hear his voice and i promise it will be clear it's not that simple though i I can't we're following a person not an abstraction not even a creed and this means that we have to learn to listen to his voice that's part of why we gather together as the people of god It's because he speaks to us, not just to individuals. He speaks to us and reveals his will within the community, within the church, so that we can hear his voice and learn what it means to follow him together. I want to offer another word of caution as you enter into this practice of listening. is that God does not change over the years. Some of this particular demands on your life might change but He does not change, which means that He will not contradict His character or the commands that He has given us in His Word. The invitation to listen is not an invitation to somehow set ourselves and what we hear or feel above the Word of God because He has revealed to Himself, himself there in a way that stands for all time. Fourth, if you listen to His voice, if you hear the call of the Master Telling you to follow him, you must obey. This is what we saw in our gospel reading today. This is what the apostles did, where they, they got it in that moment for all of their stumbling, for all the moments where, where it would become unclear to them. They got it right there that what they had to do was obey. So often, and it's our tendency here to, to almost add doubt, to pretend that we didn't really hear the voice of God. Did I really hear that? Do I really need to do that? Do I have to give that up? But I like that. Is that really what he wants me to do? And so we just wait. We call it looking for confirmation, but we're just sort of waiting until the sense of urgency dissipates. We do nothing. But listening to the voice of God does us no good if we do not obey. When we hear what he has called us to do, when he has spoken to us and given us that kairos moment, that opportune moment to obey, we must act. And as you seek to do this, as you seek to follow after him and obey, you will waver in your commitment. You will return to your sins and to your idols. You will close off your ears and you will refuse to obey. I wish it were not so. I wish that I could say it was not true about myself, but, but we're all sinful beings. And the truth is that this clear demand of Jesus that he lays upon us, we will falter in it. We do not love the Lord with all our heart. We do not love our neighbors as ourselves. We will confess that together, and as we confess that every week because we stumble and, ob- and, and fail. But we have to remember that we follow the king. The one who calls us to obedience is also the one who, who walked to the cross. This is the king we follow, the one who loves us so much that he gave himself up for us and who calls us by grace to be his sheep and calls us to obedience. And so we choose again and again to follow him to repent of anything that keeps us from coming to him, to listen to his voice and to obey the master who loves us so very deeply, who calls us into a relationship with him that is worth more than anything that we could hold on to instead. And when we do that, we'll find ourselves like the disciples walking with Jesus. And there is no better place to be. This sermon is an audio ministry from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you are in the area and would like to learn more about how you can worship with us in person or online, please visit us on the web at www.christourhopeanglican.org.